Welcome back to Series 2 of Leading in a Climate-Changed World from Olivier Mythodrama. Episode 2 sees Robin speak to entrepreneur and environmentalist Paul Gilding. This interview could perhaps be seen as a remedy to some of the messages of despair we've uncovered in previous podcasts, as Paul tells us it's not too late to shift the way we live and work to avoid total catastrophe. They discuss the subject of political and corporate leadership and how patterns of change throughout history are positive signs for our future and what we can do to instigate this. Find out how World War II could be an optimistic framework for systemic change. As always, you can get in touch with us on email, hello at leadinginaclimatechangedworld.com. We'd love to hear from you if you've got any suggestions for the podcast or for the website. Look out for us on Twitter and Facebook, and please continue to spread the word. Over to Robin and Paul. So welcome, everybody, to our podcast series, Leading in a Climate-Changed World. Today, it's a great pleasure to be talking with Paul Gilding. Paul is one of the world's most experienced and respected authorities on the implications of sustainability and climate change for business strategy and the economy. Amongst various current positions, he is a fellow at the University of Cambridge's Institute for Sustainability Leadership, exploring the inevitable market disruption as we transform the global economy at sufficient speed and scale to address system-wide risks. Another current focus is defining what it means to see climate change as the climate emergency with a new paper, Climate Emergency Defined, and an associated website. As a corporate advisor, he's worked with the boards and executives of many leading global companies, including Unilever, BHP, Billiton, Royal DSM, Ford, and DuPont. As an author and advocate, he has written a range of seminal journal papers and articles, including The Mother of All Conflicts on Climate Change and Security, and The One Degree War Plan with Jay Randers on mobilizing the global economy and society to successfully address climate change. His blog, which I can highly recommend, The Cockatoo Chronicles, explores the business implications of a rapid sustainability-driven transformation of the economy. And his book, The Great Disruption, has been widely acclaimed and featured in major media outlets around the world, including in the New York Times, where Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Tom Friedman concluded, ignore gilding at your peril. And lastly, over his 40 years as an activist and social entrepreneur, he has been CEO of a range of innovative NGOs and social enterprises, including Greenpeace International, Ecos Corporation, and Easy Being Green. In recent years, he co-founded Disruptive Consulting and the Changing Markets Foundation, and he lives in Tasmania, Australia, which is where he's talking to us today from, on a family-run mixed farm, which is part of an integrated agriculture and food tourism venture. So, Paul, huge welcome to you. Thank you very much for giving us your time. I know it's very early in the morning in Australia, so thanks again for our time to t- together today. Oh, great. Good to, good to be here. So maybe we can start with, with a little look at what you call the great disruption, like what, what is, and, and the nature of disruption. You've written a lot about that, and what do you mean by disruption, and why is it the great disruption, and why, in a way, are you still optimistic that the, the, the disruption is a good thing? Yeah, look, thanks. And, and the, I guess the, it, it, the issue for me is it comes down to we have this sort of, uh, I'd call it a delusion or a, a misinterpretation of, of life and the flow of things, that things will go on as they are. And short of tragedy or something dramatic happening, things will just progress. 
um, in a steady way. And I think the reality of both ecosystems, but also of economies and human societies, is it's much more what scientists call punctuated equilibrium. So we tend to get big dramatic changes happening pretty quickly, um, and then we move to a new state. And, and yet most of what we do is focused around this idea of gentle incremental change. And I think both on the science of climate change, on the sort of social philosophical kind of evidence of what actually occurs in human societies is we're much more likely to face and will face and virtually inevitably will face a disruptive sudden shock style transformation. And it's kind of necessary in a way. We, we, we need to be shaken out of our, our comfort zone and pushed into a new state. And that's, that's the essence of the great disruption is that you can see this coming, um, but it's going to be a dramatic shift. Um, and when it comes, we'll be forced into a much more dramatic uh, change in our attitudes and beliefs as a result. Right. And some people would say, well, that's all very well, but the science is now showing us, like people like Jem Bandel and others would say, you know, the science is showing us that we, it's basically too late. The wake-up call has come too late and we are heading inevitably for major systemic collapse. Do you agree with that? No, look, I, I, it's a very, I have a very kind of mixed reaction to that. The science is absolutely right that we're heading towards a very severe set of consequences. And it's also correct that um, we've left it very late in the process. I think too late is, a, is, a, is, I think, a fundamentally incorrect interpretation of the science and of the societal response to such crises. That too late implies a kind of binary question, right? Is in time, it's all good, it's too late, it's a catastrophe. Right? And that's, that's just not how the science says we behave. Um, it is too late to prevent far-reaching, uh, some would argue catastrophic, certainly for some people, um, very severe and very negative impacts for much of society. So in that sense, is it too late? Yes, it's too late. Uh, obviously, look around us. Now, we're facing climate change today. We're facing economic consequences today. People are losing their homes today. So if your objective is to prevent there being a problem, then yes, we are too late in the sense of, of avoiding any kind of impacts. But we're not too late in terms of preventing the runaway climate change uh, catastrophic collapse type scenarios. Now, we may well still face them, but too late implies that we can't prevent them, and I think that is wrong. It's wrong on the science, it's also wrong on humanity, because it, it assumes we don't have this capacity to really dramatically uh, mobilise in response, and that's the essence of my work, is to show, because I thought this moment was inevitable, to, for my work is to show, now we can do extraordinary things incredibly quickly, once we put our minds to it. And, that, and that's the essence of what I'll, people kind of accuse me of being optimistic, and that's a relative term, um, based on what we're facing today. Um, but I'm, I'm often said, I'll pause the optimist on this issue, because I don't believe there is a too late. I believe there is a point where we are going to respond. Right, and you have some evidence, I know in your books and in your talks about times when we have responded rapidly and dramatically and in very significant ways to huge challenges that we face. But maybe you could just enumerate one or two of those for the people sure. who listen to the podcast. Yeah, look, I think this is really important because, because it's very hard to imagine a scale of change I think we're going to have to, you know, deliver to prevent this, this whole issue getting out of control. And it's hard to imagine in today's blocked up, you know, screwed up, trickle-like politics that we could actually organise this as a society. 
So it's important to really think through what would it take, how would we deliver it, who would deliver it, and what is our role in that process. And that's that's the essence of my arguments. That that if you look at World War Two, which I still think it is imperfect, but it's the best example we've got. In World War Two, especially in the UK, there was a really powerful example, which is relevant to us, of how we can and do respond once a crisis hits, but also how we avoid responding until the last possible moment and our capacity for, for denial is so strong. So that process that we're going through now on climate change, we also went through in World War II. And yet, when we did respond, the most extraordinary things that would have seemed completely impossible before they were delivered, were then delivered, and a result was achieved, which, which have still involved huge amounts of tragedy, but was not the catastrophic collapse and loss that people were expecting was possible. So that context is really important. Now, in a practical sense, World War II was a complete transformation of the economy in a couple of years. I mean, the war went for five years, but you know, the, the UK and the US economies went from one or 2% of GDP going on the war effort, one or 2% of GDP, not just the government spending, but of the whole economy, from one or 2% up to 30, 40, 50% in different countries. Uh, dedicated towards the war effort. That's a complete and total transformation of the economy inside three or four years. Now, that's what we need on climate change. Now, we do need to eliminate the fossil fuel industry. We need to transform our approach to investment. You know, we need to, we need to destroy a whole range of industries and virtually eliminate them from the economy as we build totally new industries that replace them, right? And, and that's not, bad, not a bad thing to do economically. But it is, it is hard to imagine that scale of change, and that's why World War II is such a good example. What I, what I kind of reject, though, <clears throat> because of that time frame, is people saying it's capitalism, you know, it's the whole way we think, we have to transform everything about society in five to ten years. That's not going to happen. Right? That, there's, there's no evidence, I don't think, of, of that mental shift happening that fast. We need to do that, by the way, because there is some fundamental things about how we organise our society that are cause this problem but right now we have a very practical physical problem which is that we need to transform the energy sector the transport sector the agricultural sector and we need to do that i believe you know, through not not through the existing systems in total because we're going to have to destroy much of that and replace it in a physical sense but we are going to have to recognize there's a two-phase process here the first is to stabilize the climate right to get the practical stuff done and then to reflect a little bit you know, quite a big bit on on what did we do wrong in our society to get us into this mess in the first place. Right, and to come back to your example of World War Two, I mean that that degree of change happened because people felt their lives were really in danger. So, do we need to wait even longer until the waves are lapping at our doors, like in the West, for example, in the way that they are in the Pacific Islands already? I mean, what will what will catalyze the movement that's necessary. Yeah, and this, this is obviously the crucial question, isn't it? <clears throat> when, when will we respond? What will it take? Um, I don't think it actually takes any more physical impacts. I think it's a mental thing, which is why I was keen to talk to you, because I think it is about leadership, individual, personal, and collective leadership. Um, I don't think we need to have any more evidence. You know, Sydney today, I'm luckily in Tasmania in a beautiful, clean, green state. But in, in Sydney today, you know, they're blanketed in, in bushfire smoke again, right? In the South Pacific, you know, there are islands disappearing and people being forced out of their homes today, right? We are facing, <clears throat> I think, any kind of year 
any month, any time, another global food crisis. Uh, I think we are already seeing around us the evidence, physical and otherwise, that shows that the climate is changing and we are in a climate emergency today. So more evidence doesn't necessarily help. Right? Like the, in World War II, the threat didn't suddenly get bigger. The threat had been building over time and didn't flip overnight. There was a decision made by those who saw themselves at that time as being in charge of society. There was a flip in the state of mental awareness about the issue. That's what we need on climate. And that's why I think the Greta Thunberg school strikes, Extinction Rebellion, you know, all these things are so crucially important to, to what's happening right now today and how we think about these issues. And that's, that's the flip that we need. So we shouldn't be looking for the physical consequences. We should be looking for the, the psychic, social, political tipping points. That's the issue that we have to, we have to you know, hope will tip us over in, in time. Right. And that brings us right into the question of leadership. So, so where do you start to see the leadership, political leadership, grassroots leadership, corporate leadership, NGO leadership? Who, who, are, who and where are, is the leadership? that's needed to bring about the change that you're talking about? Yeah, so, so I, I refer to this as being the sort of two parts of this. There is the underlying preparedness. So is the system ready for a tipping point? And you know, I've been working on this, this issue for 30 years on climate change and on sustainability for 45, right? So I'm, I feel pretty comfortable I've seen you know, trends come and go in that time frame, and I think I'm, I'm reasonably comfortable that I'm right about how, how these how these points could be seen ahead of time. Now, of course, no one knows, and, and no one knows the science of climate change. We could, all, well, we could be much further along in the process than we think. We could be less along in the process than we think. It's actually very hard to measure and be precise on these whole system-wide issues. Not, not the threat, I emphasise, but the scale of how fast it's moving. So if you think about it in that context, you, you look at the, the preparedness of the chip, and, and that's not a great phrase, but, it, but it's pretty clear what I mean, is, is the system leadership in particular. So are corporate leaders ready to change their attitude fundamentally and profoundly? Are they? Uh, political leaders are ready for it. Yes, they are. I think they are because without wishing to kind of um, be too overly critical, they're pretty much lemmings, right? Markets are fundamentally follow each other. And, and that they, there is this process that occurs in the corporate sector. Um, Lemming-like can collectively go over a cliff, but also can suddenly change uh, collectively. And they tend not to go individually. individually. And, who's, who's, and who's, who's, who's leading the lemmings at the moment? So, so I, think, I think there is, uh, the, unfortunately, the issue is that we're waiting for, um, I would argue, the collective will to gather enough steam to tip it over, and there is no one who's going to tip that over. There are no individuals, right, who are actually capable of tipping the system as a whole. And I say that not negatively, because they've been doing that for a long time. There are individual leaders in the corporate sector, in the finance sector, I don't want to come back to politics, but in the financial markets, amongst investors, amongst major companies, disruptive companies, entrepreneurial companies, many people are doing many things. And that builds the system's momentum up for a tipping point, right? But it doesn't tip it over the edge until there's enough capacity, you know, to actually drive it over that point. So I could list, you know, dozens of leaders over 30 years, right, who have tried very hard to get the system to change. 
and failed because the momentum wasn't there. Then you need a shock, a system shock. And I think that's what Extinction Rebellion, the school strikes, young people's attitudes are, um, is actually the, the critical thing that's been missing from the system to tip us over that, that, that edge. And what happens in a very practical sense, I mean this, that I talk to people in the C-suite of companies about this very issue, is they go, to, literally, literally to me in this case, is it really that bad? Is it really, are we on the edge of collapse? Are we actually talking about the, the total, you know, tipping point of rundown of civilization, the ascent into chaos, you know, the collapse of civilization? I said, yeah, that's a choice. That's where we are today. So that system shock of outside influence and pressure makes the question be asked. And then you get to a certain point where it, where it goes over the edge. And I think that is happening today, right? So I think the critical thing is that is what we're seeing around us today. And I think we are literally months, <clears throat> a year or two, you know, away from that tipping point, taking, taking us forward in huge leaps and bounds. Now, the political class, right, the, the politicians, the, the heads of major global institutions are also ready, but they really respond. They really don't lead. And that, that's, I think, sad and terrible and annoys me endlessly. But the reality is that I, I think that most people in politics are incredibly reactive to the world around them. And it takes a slightly unhinged person like a Churchill to actually put everything around them at risk, right, to, 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 to drive the system over the edge. And that will emerge, but it's not an important issue. So don't, don't look for political leadership to save us from this in terms of the leaders of political parties and governments. Look for the system to tip, to tip and the political leadership to then jump into the opportunity that creates for them. Right. That's very interesting theory of change. So what you're really saying is that the, what's making the difference at the moment is the kind of popular grassroots civil disobedience uprising of Extinction Rebellion, the school climate strikes. That's, that's building momentum to the point where companies will start to get the, 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 the tipping point will happen for companies and also for political leadership. Correct. And, and, and let, let me try and make that a bit more tangible. So, for example... Um, you know, I write a lot about the fossil fuel industry, uh, oil, gas companies, coal companies are pretty much gone, I think, um, in, in terms of the sweep of history. Um, but oil and, and gas still have a way to go. So what does that look like in a practical sense? What it means is the financial markets know today that oil and gas companies are, are assuming and investing against a proposition there will be oil and gas used at large scale in 20, 30 and 40 years time. Right? Not, not about the market today, that's not important. What's important is the assumption of what the market will be in 20, 30 years' time. So the industry is investing hundreds of millions, hundreds of billions, sorry, hundreds of billions of dollars every year in discovering new reserves of oil, coal and gas um, that will be used in 20, 30 or 40 years' time. That's a mental thing. Right? Once the financial markets say that's actually not going to be used, that money's being wasted today, and those companies are radically devalued today. Right? This is the whole carbon bubble, carbon, tra carbon tracker work. And that's a tipping point. Because once that money goes from those industries, it has to go somewhere else. So where does it go? It goes to plant-based food. It goes to solar power. It goes to wind. It goes to batteries. It has to go somewhere. Right? And that's a, that's a practical example where the market doesn't need to be convinced about the climate science, doesn't need to be convinced about the importance of acting, doesn't need to be convinced about any moral case. It just needs to believe that the system is now going, I need to go now. 
And once some go, they all go. And once that happens, the political leaders go, oh my God, the economy is now in transition. I need to jump on this bandwagon and drive this process. So that, that's what I mean is that, is that, yes, you know, Extinction Rebellion is not going to take over governments, right? We are not going to move to citizens' assemblies as a way of making decisions about the future of defence policy, for example. But is that an important part of the process? It's an absolutely critical part of the process. And I would argue it's the intervention we need today. But it's not by, everyone looks at these things in isolation. Will the corporate sector save us? Will political leadership save us? Will Extinction Rebellion take over the government? None of those things are right. Uh, it is the system acting as a whole is how change occurs. And therefore, reassuringly, I think, every individual corporate leader, every individual activist leader, every individual community leader, every analyst, every person working in a company, everyone working at Findhorn, right, are all part of the process of that system changing. And, and we kind of tend to look for the big leadership moment where we're driven over the edge into a new future. And that's more of a manifestation of where we're at as opposed to the cause of us changing. Right. I, I'm, I'm starting to be persuaded by <laughs> the power of your argument. I also, I also carry a question about how much... Well, I'm thinking about leadership and I'm thinking about training and, and developing leaders and, and whether it's important. I mean, it feels to me it's really important that people also feel the consequences of their actions and not just kind of work from a, a headspace that says, you know, this is, this is our analysis of the situation, but they actually feel it more fully. And when we feel it more fully, then it generates a different kind of response. So I'm also curious to know when you do your individual work with CEOs or with people in the C-suite, what are you, what are you noticing and, and what would you be encouraging and developing in those kind of leaders that helps them do the right thing at the moment? Yeah. Uh, great, great question. Uh, look, to me, it's all about boldness, right? And, and that's why what your comment about the importance of feeling as though you're having an impact is making a difference is courage and boldness. So someone like Greta Thunberg, you know, a lot of profile at the moment, which is excellent, and I think is a great symbol of the type of leadership we need, by the way, is she's, you know, in most cases, pretty polite and positively and, and almost lightly talking about really severe and really serious and threatening issues in a way which is quite empowering. And I find that really comforting and I find that very um, uh, symbolic of the type of leadership we need to answer your question. So I talk to CEOs and I say, no, it is that bad, right? And if you don't step up in this situation, you are going to look back on this moment and say, my God, what was I thinking? How could I ignore the evidence around me? So you can be paralysed by that evidence or you can say, I'm going to take a risk, I'm going to be bold, I'm going to put myself out there um, as someone who is, is believing in this process and needs to encourage all those around me to act. And that's going to be scary, right? And it's going to be acting ahead of the people around you acting, right? And therefore, it's going to have you, require you to have a fair degree of courage um, and to face your demons in that process to push the boundaries of what's possible. Right, and do you feel, like I know you worked with Unilever, with Paul Pullman and people like that, do you feel that there's backing when, I, when, I, when in, in the corporations that you work with? Do you feel that there's, there's institutional support for that kind of leadership or do people end up being forced out and well, that was a kind of nice period of our, of our life, but actually back to basics now, how are we gonna grow the bottom line in the next quarter? 
and, and this is my point about is the system ready for this today is is really the crucial question to answer your 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 um, question about that so i think yes society is now ready for that kind of leadership it's very individual in the context so back to greta thunberg which i think is a really fine example right now there are many young people who've done extraordinary things right in the last five to ten years on this issue now her approach took off is it because she's an extraordinary leader yes but there are many extraordinary leaders amongst young people around today so when does you know what uh, paul pullman for example for unilever enormously successful in his business right delivered outstanding returns for shareholders all the usual criteria but was incredibly bold but how he took it how he took the approach john brown from bp you know a decade and a half earlier was equally bold was equally extraordinary in his focus on these issues and got thrown out Right, because the time wasn't right, the context wasn't ready for it. Now, there's, and there's always lots of other things going on, of course, in a situation like that. So it is risky. Uh, it does take courage because you have to manage the complexity of the corporate system. But there is, I remember talking to, I won't name him, but, but another CEO, another company, who said to me very clearly, like a decade ago, I am not going to be one of those CEOs that does all the right things for the world after I've left the job. I'm not going to be a great CEO, deliver great shareholder returns, and then go and give back to society. I'm in a position of power today. I need to do the right thing today. Right? So I need to really push myself and take a fair degree of risk in driving that change while I'm in this role and not wish I'd done it afterwards. And that, that to me is a really crucial question because it is difficult, very difficult, for people in these roles to be strong outside their comfort zone of the corporate role. And that's why I think this is a very important issue that you raise. Right. And do you also feel that, that when people come together or there's kind of some kind of certification like the B Corp or the UN Global Compact or things like that, that do you feel like those things are helpful also so that people don't feel so alone and isolated in their development? I, I do think they're very helpful. All those processes are helpful, but you can also create your own, right? And that's what I think is a really important question to me, is that it's personal comfort in the leadership you're taking and the reaction of people around you to that. So the leadership you get uh, support for in your board, right, in your friends, uh, in your family, in your community. So one thing that I think Pullman was particularly good at was going out and talking to other corporate leaders about them joining him in doing that work. Yes, there were some organisations, the B team, other groups he was involved in, which I think are, are good examples. I, I use Paul as an example because it's, he's a very public figure. And so what he's doing is not, you know, not at all um, confidential. But there are lots of people doing this in other ways, right? So they're doing it amongst their friends and family. They're doing it in their own leadership teams, right? They're making sure that they employ people working in their teams that are aligned with that. And they make purpose and courage a hallmark of their, their business culture. So there are many ways of having that support, but recognising it is lonely at the top, as they say, and you do have to create that, that community of support around you in that process. Right. And you also need to be able to, to bring your kind of middle and lower managers with you. Like I was working with one energy company that shall remain nameless, who, who are where the CEO and, and the kind of senior levels have signed up for the energy transition. And they do oil and gas at the moment. They say, we're going to change all that. We're going to do renewables. 
And then we were working with people kind of middle management level and they were all saying, well, she's a bit mad actually, like, cause you know, we know all the money is actually in oil and gas. So we're just going to carry on doing this for as long as we possibly can. Yeah. So that's not an uncommon challenge. No, not at all. Very, very common challenge. And there's, there's two aspects to that. One is just a business strategy question, right? Which is that when you're doing this kind of change, you recognize that you want the people making the money today to keep making the money while you develop a new strategy, right? And, and, and sometimes it's a, it's a structural thing of how do you organize your business to do both those things at once. This is complicated stuff. But if I go back to my disruption tipping point kind of argument, I think the urgency in this is now so acute that the, the economic case for courage and boldness, if you like, the business case for radical change is so much stronger. So most oil and gas companies, for example, I'm picking on them as just like very dramatic symbolic examples, but the same thing applies in the rest of the economy. But most oil and gas companies will not transform, right? They will fail. And not because they're bad people, not because they're, you know, they're, they're, it's inherent that they do so. It's just the way corporations behave. So I've written a lot about this recently, this issue of incumbents versus disruptors. And if you look at economic history, and I work on this at the University of Cambridge um, Institute for Sustainability Leadership, it, the incumbents tend to behave a certain pattern, follow a certain pattern of behaviour. Right, and that pattern of behavior is to focus on the today's important sources of income while playing on the edges of a transformation, thinking that market will emerge slowly and gently and they'll be able to catch up and accelerate at the time. Not how it works. Right? It works you know, in a dr fairly dramatic and fairly sudden change. And therefore, the markets say, the financial markets go, okay, well, I want to invest in solar now. I want to invest in wind now. I want to invest in battery technology and electric cars. Who would I go to to do that? Would I go to Shell or BP or Exxon, right, who have incredible competence and amazing levels of skill in totally different industries, right? Or would I go and put my money into disruptive, radical people who understand where their market is going? And they pretty much universally choose the latter, which is why Tesla is valued so highly versus GM and Ford, for example, right? Because the market in a collective wisdom kind of way recognizes that this radical disruptive change is not very well delivered by old secure incumbent companies. Right? And it's and I say that in not in a in a kind of nasty way about those old companies. It's just the way the market works. And therefore the conversation in those companies today is should be all about radical, disruptive, bold strategies to radically transform the company in a very short time. Because when this change comes, it's not going to be kind to those who are slow. So archetypally, we would say we need the renegade energy, the, the kind of the, the disruptive, the, the lightning bolt that disrupts things fast. That's the, that's the kind of quality that we need in leadership and, and in corporations and politically everywhere at the moment. And, and that's, that's a bit scary. Right. right. And you have to be driven by purpose. You have to believe, you know, Winston Churchill is a great example, I think, of this. Slightly unhinged at different times, uh, depressed, alcoholic, you know, uh, deeply insecure, amazingly self-confident, you know, all at once. Um, and I think was, was, you know, written off so many times and then came back and displayed extraordinary leadership in a fairly dysfunctional way uh, and then was promptly dispensed with by society after he delivered that change. Right, so it's a really good and bad example of lots of these issues. Mm -hmm. But you have to be bold. 
and and you have to be disruptive, you have to be the renegade. And therefore, you've got to pick the time in which you do that really carefully. And my argument is now is the time. Right. That 15 years ago was not the time. Right now is the time for that level of leadership. Right, and maybe we could also just touch on this question of time and urgency and panic. Like when there's, there's a couple of critiques, I have a lot of time as many people do on these podcasts for Extinction Rebellion for sure. And I also interviewed Gail Bradbrook and we had a, a great conversation about all this. But I've also heard like from, from my own children and from other people that, that I know some kind of resistance around some of the strategy of sure. Extinction Rebellion, uh, partly around panic. Like, is panic helpful or does it tend to kind of shut us down from the kind of innovative uh, breakthroughs that we need? I mean, many people would say innovation comes when we're more kind of spacious than when we're in a place of panic. So that's one question. And the other is whether there's a place where power is being given away and in a way invoking a kind of strong authoritarian leadership that's going to tell us what to do and legislate for everything that we need. So what, what, do you, what would you say to those two things? So, so first of all, I, I think that the analysis in that way is flawed in that it's looking for a single answer and a single player who has the solution. So I unreservedly support Extinction Rebellion. I think it is the most exciting and the most significant thing that's happened in this movement in 30 years. Right? So it is a game changer. Do I support every single thing that they do and feel comfortable with it? No, of course I don't. But I'm looking at the system as a whole. I'm looking at how the system changes as a result of that pressure being applied at that point. So do, they, do I think that they are going to take over government and start making decisions? Of course they're not, right? Do I think that we're, they're, they're a crucial part of the system tipping? Absolutely I do. I don't need to be comfortable with what they do. And that's, that's this idea that we have a single answer. This is a system. And the system works by interventions and pressure points and then it gets to a certain point, and then we all act differently. We need innovators to be open. We need innovators to be excited and, 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 and generating extraordinary innovations and new ways of thinking and have a different mindset, right? They won't have the opportunity to do that unless Extinction Rebellion applies fear and panic into the system, right? So you've got to see that system as a whole and not look for a universal behaviour type from every individual. And that to me is a, is a crucial question. So I unreservedly support Extinction Rebellion doing what they're doing. I unreservedly support, you know, corporate leaders who are pushing the boundaries inside their companies. I unreservedly support political leaders who are pushing the boundaries and taking risks in that area. But I don't rec I recognize that all of them collectively is what will tip the system over the edge, not the individual action. And so why do we do that? Why do we actually say, oh, I'm not sure about that behavior and that action over there wasn't really appropriate and oh, I don't really support them that much. It's scary, right? It makes me, my God, should I be like jettisoning everything I do? Have I got time to talk to Robert Alfred? Should I be going and gluing myself to a, to a bridge somewhere and closing down traffic? If we're panicking, what should I be doing? That's, that's, that's pretty uncomfortable, right? That's a question we should be asking ourselves every day. Am I doing the right thing? Is this the most high impact thing I can be doing today? And we each have to answer that question, but we don't, we don't do that. We tend to look at the system as a whole and what should we, we're judging from the outside. Um, every behavior is always the behavior we need as opposed to looking at how the system behaves. Yeah, totally agree with that. And I guess alongside what is the most high impact thing I can do today, I guess I would frame it a little bit in terms of what am I called to do today? 
you know, because I think, I think part of our, our responsibility is to, is to kind of listen deeply within us to know what is our calling and what is the role that we need to play, knowing that, as you say, it's, well, we're all part of a system and the system has many other different actors doing their thing too. And, and, and really important point, and you and I have talked about this a lot in the past, is, is that it's hard personally. You know, I'm, I'm putting forward this optimistic view of, of the world's going to change and this is how systems work and here's my analysis that argues for that and very kind of heady kind of frameworks around how the world works. As we've discussed, you know, I live in fear regularly, right, of, oh, my God, is it too late? Is the system collapsing around me? Am, is, my way, is my life a waste of time? We've achieved nothing. Here we go, over the edge. Now, if you're not having those thoughts sometimes, you're kind of not paying attention, right? Because that is how serious this situation is. If you live in that place, if you live in the grief, then you can be paralysed by it. So it is actually quite hard work to get to the point that you're talking about. It's quite hard work to say, I acknowledge that fear, I'm having this grief, I'm expressing that grief, and then I'm going back to work to get things to happen. And that's, that's a complicated emotional, psychic process you have to go through to to get to the right point. No, absolutely, and that's also about so that's also about the courage to feel, and the courage to kind of look inside and be honest with what I'm what I'm feeling, so I don't kind of disassociate and just kind of become a driven activist that isn't feeling. Also, it's a, as you say, it's a complex series of, of internal dynamics to manage around that. And, and correct, and also, which you know, I find a lot easier at sixty than I did at thirty. You know, not to judge those around you, right, who are not there yet. Yeah. Right? So there are activists who I look at who are angry, who are bitter, who are out to get revenge on whatever happened in their lives, and activism is a way of doing that. And I see that, and I, you know, I was probably like that. Um, so I'm very sympathetic and empathetic to that kind of process. But I also know what actually kind of you need some of those people doing some of the stuff that they're doing in society, Right, and would I like them to be more enlightened beings and more at ease with themselves? And well, yeah, of course, it'd be great if we're all the Dalai Lama, but we're not, right? And and therefore we have to recognise where people are coming from. So corporate leaders, for example, are mostly very male ego driven, right? And and they're aggressive and they're unpleasant and they're full of themselves, and that's sort of you almost need some of that to be successful in today's context. Now. The more enlightened leaders, of course, are better leaders, but I don't, rec- I don't judge those who aren't perfect as not being able to contribute. And I often you know, say to my male CEO friends, never underestimate the power, power of the male ego as a force for social change. You know, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, if, they're, if they're driven by ego and being great leaders and producing extraordinary change and being made into heroes, okay, whatever works for you guys, that's fine with me. If that drives you to act and to do good things, I'm okay with that. I'm not, would it be better if you were more enlightened? Of course. Would it be better if I was more enlightened? Yeah, of course. But we are what we are and we're in this space and whatever works for me works because it is panic. It is fear. Right? We are on the edge of the precipice and therefore we need to draw on everything we've got today to try and make that change happen. Yeah, that's great, Paul. And we're, we're going to close in a moment. I know it's the beginning of your working day, so I don't want to take up more of your time. But I really appreciate also this emphasis on seeing it all as a system and, and the different parts that the, the, the people play within the system. And I just want to give you the opportunity to, to imagine, because we're talking at the time of the COP25 in Madrid, 
to imagine that you were there and you're speaking to the, the world's leaders that are gathered there. If you had a couple of minutes to say something to them, what would you want to convey? So I think I would say, first of all, feel the fear. Right, we are on the edge of the precipice. We are at a point in history where we will be judged as the people who made the decision which way we're going as a civilization at this point. And you are totally right to feel the fear. You are right to have a sense of panic because if we get this wrong today, we are in deep and serious trouble. The exciting thing is that the actions we need to take are universally positive, they are not enormous sacrifices. They're not bad for society, that we're not going to go and, you know, kill millions of people in a war. We are going to save millions and billions of lives in what we do. So every action we need to take today is going to make society more equal, you know, cleaner, healthier, more exciting, more fun to live in. It's an entirely positive crisis in terms of the response that we need to, we need to follow now. So you should feel the fear. And you should feel that sense of incredible obligation and responsibility as to what has to happen now. But don't feel as though we're going over our own, we're not choosing to go over the precipice, right? We're choosing not to, right? We're choosing to do things that are going to be looked at in history as advancing civilization, as taking us forward, as building a better society, a stronger society, and one in which we're going to be more comfortable living than the one we're in today. So feel good about everything you do, feel the sense of urgency, but recognise that, that, that you are going to feel as though you've delivered an excellent and beneficial result for society overall. Yeah, it's a great message, Paul. And thank you so much. I really appreciate our time together. I really enjoyed it a lot. And also want to thank you for all that you've done over the 45 years you've been working in this the domain. I know you've worked in many different places, NGOs, corporates, you know, different places, also even in the military. I know you also served in the, in the military as well. So thanks for all that you've done. Thanks. Good luck to you for the work you're going to be doing in the future also. And thanks for giving us your time today. That's no, great. It's great to discuss it in this context. I really appreciate the work that you do. Thank you. Mm -hmm.